0: This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. In the American Midwest, a brand new Zen training monastery is now open. Karengi is a monastery in the Rinzai Zen Buddhist tradition, located on 17 forested acres near Reedsburg, Wisconsin, about 50 miles from Madison. Under development since 2008, Karengi is now open for its first residence as of March 2018. As a private residence for ordained monastics, Karinji is led under the guidance of Meido Moore Roshi. From his biography at karingi.org, Meido Roshi is the abbot of Karinji Monastery in Wisconsin. He studied under three Rinzai Zen masters, Tenzan Toyota Rakoji, under whom he also endured training in traditional martial arts, Dogen Hosokawa Roshi, and Sozan Meloroshi. All are in the lineage of Amora Sogen Roshi, perhaps the most famous Rinzai Zen master of the 20th century, who is further renowned as a master of calligraphy and swordsmanship. In 2008, Meido Roshi received Inka Shome, or Mind Seal, designating him an 86th generation Zen Dharma heir and a 48th generation holder of the lineage descended from Rinzai. Like many of the teachers in this lineage, his instruction stresses the embodied nature of Zen realization, often making use of physical culture and fine arts as complementary disciplines. In particular, he has stressed instruction of the internal energetic practices transmitted in Rinzai Zen. Meito Roshi's book, The Rinzai Zen Way, A Guide to Practice, is out from Shambhala Publications in March 2018. The focus of our conversation is his book, and I highly recommend picking up a copy. It's incredibly accessible to anyone, even if you've never read a book about Zen in your life. As a very special inclusion in this episode, the abbot graciously performed The Four Great Vows, a chant recited during Zen practice at the end of this conversation. It's a very special piece of this episode, and I hope you listen to the end to hear it. For more information, you should visit koringi.org, that's K-O-R-I-N-J-I dot for more information or to contact the monastery. Without further delay, here is my conversation with Medo Moroshi. Roshi. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I am here today with Mato Moore. Mato, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas.
1: Thanks for having me, Greg.
0: Um, Can you go ahead and start by just introducing yourself a little bit to the audience?
1: Well, um, I'm the Abbot of Korinji, which is a Rinzai Zen monastery, uh, which is a new thing. It's just been founded or just been completed. It's located near Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, So so essentially, uh, that's my primary uh, vocation and duty as a Zen teacher there. And um, we're, we're extremely thrilled to have a new training facility specifically for Rinzai Zen uh, in the heart of uh, the North American uh, Midwest. Um, th- that's the project which has been my life's dream, and it's finally coming to fruition, so I'm very happy to talk about it with you.
0: Fantastic. And I know that your official title is a Roshi, correct?
1: Well, Roshi is, is a title which is used for... Uh, Zen teachers, and in the Rinzai Zen tradition, it specifically is only used for people who have received what's called Inka, or Inka Shomei, which is the, the uh, certification as a, as a fully transmitted teacher. It's not a real title, it's something a student would use for a teacher, but it's not something that I would
0: put on a business card, <laughs> for example. Gotcha.
1: So, um, yeah, it's fine. it's fine to use that word for me, but Meido is fine too.
0: Excellent. So you are the first abbot that I have had on the show, and did your—am I correct that your training monastery, Karinji, is opening up, like, basically as we speak?
1: Yeah, the first ango, which is the first period of formal monastic training, begins this coming Wednesday, March 14th.
0: And is that, like, the first official day of opening?
1: It is. It is. We've obviously been using the place for practice for some years now. We've been developing the land there since 2009— But uh, this is the first time we'll have people in residence doing formal monastic training, so it's uh, quite exciting.
0: Amazing. So since you're the first abbot I've had on the show, um, what will the day-to-day life be like as a full-time live-in abbot? Like if you were to come to like a career day at like the high school that I teach at, what would you tell people about what your job will be as a full-time monastic abbot?
1: I would tell them to choose wisely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's a life centered on practice and it's a life centered on uh, community and service to one another. Um, it's a, it's a rigorous schedule, uh, by some standards, there's very little sleep. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, obviously meditation practice, but, uh, manual labor and other activities. Um, there's, it's a full day. There's not much time for rest and there's certainly not much time for indulging in one's, um, creature comforts or personal preferences. Uh, so it's, demanding but the rewards are immense and and it's the kind of place that uh, i think we need more of in this country if zen is going to survive that's why we're so excited about it
0: and you're in the midwest too like you are regionally appropriate to me like i could legitimately drive to your monastery within about a day's drive
1: oh yeah and i would like to say also that people are very welcome to visit us uh, you know as long as they give us some heads up that they're coming it's a private residence for monastics and and it It's what's called uh, a senmon dojo, or a sodo, which is specifically a rigorous training monastery where folks who are interested in ordination can train and receive that. But that being said, uh, we want it, we intend it to be open to anyone. And if someone wanted to come just for a day or a weekend to practice with us, as long as they let us know, uh, certainly anyone's
0: welcome. Fantastic. So how many full-time students will you have as Karinji gets going off the ground as a full-time live-in center?
1: When we designed it, uh, we set it up to be able to handle about six full-time residents in addition to myself as the abbot. And uh, I believe this year we're going to have that full uh, contingent of six folks. Um, Right now we have four committed uh, to be there with me initially starting this week. We have a woman coming from Japan in April and then another gentleman coming from uh, Vancouver uh, in the summer. So I think by the summertime we'll have our
0: full six. Excellent. Do you recruit people or do you just kind of wait for people to appear? Like, how does this work?
1: Yeah, I try to discourage people (laughs) rather than recruit them. Yeah. We simply mention on our website that uh, we offer this kind of training and someone who wants to commit to residence there can apply. And, uh, you know, I think most people who apply have no idea what they're asking for or what they're getting into because most people here don't have experience of that kind of training. But um, I would say most of the people who have applied have been quite sincere and, and uh, are, are ready to benefit from it. So I've been very pleased with the quality
0: of the people who have shown interest. Excellent. How, um, how often do you turn applicants away? Or I, or, say, or, or I mean, like people who want to study with you, like how often do you um, turn away a potential students? I
1: wouldn't say that I turn anyone away. My job is not to discourage anyone, but to try and find a practice of a type and a level which is appropriate for their conditions so there might be many people who believe they're interested in living in the monastery and it might not be something they're ready for but i'd like to give them some other options we obviously have groups in uh, other places that are not monastic and residential in nature but which also provide uh, wonderful practice opportunities so i try to steer people towards the practice which is appropriate for them the purpose of the monastery is to provide that highest or most immersive level of training for people uh, who can benefit from it so if, if someone can benefit from it they're welcome there if not we find something else for them to do because zen is an open gate uh to anyone depending on their conditions
0: there is a. Uh, I know you have a book coming out on Shambhala, and we're going to talk about that a lot in just a little bit. And but there's an author who is also on Shambhala named Shosan Jack Hobner in the mm-hmm. Rinzai in the Rinzai tradition, and he was on this show, and he told me a lot about like the nuts and bolts of like day to day life as a novice um, monk, like somebody who comes in like on day one. Like, what's your life like living in a monastery as a student? So um, that was a really cool conversation to me. And you know you can anybody can check that episode out as well if you want to know about like coming in as a new student, um, which is was a lot of fun. So can we go back in time a little bit, please? So tell me how you found your uh, how you found Zen and your teacher.
1: Well, I've had several Zen teachers actually, but they're all in the same lineage. So so really, I can talk about the first one, I suppose. Um, My interest in Buddhism, Buddhist practice in general, was from a very young age. I don't really understand the origin of it. But uh, by the time I was in high school, I knew I wanted to pursue that. Uh, I did a religious studies uh, bachelor's at Rutgers University uh, with an emphasis on East Asian uh, traditions. And I ended up going to India my junior year, Um, Antioch University uh, in Ohio. And I believe they still run it, has a wonderful Buddhist studies program in Bodhgaya, India. I was able to participate in that, and while there I could receive instruction in uh, several different Buddhist traditions. So I would say that was the origin of my actual uh, practice, and and confirmed for me that I knew I wanted to pursue that path. But as for Zen, I didn't know much about it, and I had no idea about the differences, for example, between Rinzai and Soto lineages, or Chinese Chan, or anything like that. But by chance, I was also doing uh, martial arts training in a Japanese. Uh, tradition, Aikido, and uh, I happened to meet a Japanese Aikido Shihan or master level teacher who was also a Zen master, a Zen teacher. He had emigrated to Chicago in 1974. So um, long story short, when I finished my university study and uh, having come back from India, I was also quite ill. I had gotten tuberculosis while I was there, so I was using martial arts to become healthy again. He pulled me aside when I saw him uh, not not uh, long before my graduation. And he said, what are you doing when you leave school? I said, well, I don't know, but I'd like to study Buddhism and I'm interested to do martial arts. And he said, come to Chicago. So a few months later, I was there and I was living in what I found out to be was the temple, Zen temple, which he uh, was responsible for. And I lived as a resident trainee under his guidance for seven years. By the end of that time, I knew that Zen training, specifically Rinzai Zen, which was the lineage he carried, was what I wanted to devote my life to. And everything went from there. So it's kind of a strange path. Um, I, my experience of that is what leads me to advise people who are interested in this kind of practice to not focus on the lineage or the style that they think they might be interested in, but rather just to find the teacher or the person that they have some affinity or click with. That's what I had with this gentleman. Um, he was really, I guess, what you would call my root teacher or heart teacher, as some traditions might say. Just so happened that he was a Rinzai Zen teacher. So that's why I followed Rinzai Zen, because that's what my teacher did.
0: Is, is that who you received your Inka from? No, actually not. He passed away,
1: <laughs> unfortunately. At oh, goodness. 50. Yeah, he, he died quite young. Um, under his guidance, I trained in Zen and martial arts, and he also directed me to begin Sun Zen, which is the formal Koan study under Another teacher, Hosokawa Roshi, uh, in the, connected to the same lineage. So I began training with him and did most of my training uh, in terms of the koan curriculum under him. And then finally, I finished my training under one of his successors, Sozan Roshi, who is still active in Chicago.
0: Excellent. So I know you did all your training in Chicago, and yes. but where are you originally from? New Jersey. Excellent. Okay. Cool. That explains the Rutgers connection. Um, <laughs> That's- exactly so you have it so i've been re- i read your book and i absolutely love it because it's so accessible to all levels of people i feel you have a great reverence for teachers in your book and you reference repeatedly that practicing with a reputable teacher is really important and that solitary practice is while it can be good and useful it's also incomplete so why is it so important to have a teacher in zen as opposed to Studying alone.
1: Why is it important to have a teacher in anything true? You know, it's it's there are some things which by their very nature. It's difficult if not impossible to really learn uh, Depending on one's own devices Zen in particular because the practice requires us to see through and, and uh, begin to work with our own obstructions and delusions um, the, the very nature of that means that we are among the most ill-equipped of anyone to decide what type of practice we should be doing you know most of us would practice according to our own preferences our own patterns and obstructions rather than in a manner which is actually appropriate to our condition so the teacher's job first and foremost is to prescribe the 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 actual format of the path which best fits us, and oftentimes that path is not going to be what's comfortable for us or what we would choose for ourselves. So for that reason alone, I think it's indispensable. Of course, in Zen we also have this uh, idea that uh, transmission or receiving the teachings from another person uh, is really uh, central to the the tradition. Um, This is not just in the sense of being certified by someone else or, uh, you know, having things explained to us by someone else. But there's a subtle or an energetic, a vibrational uh, uh, transmission or connection that happens only between two human beings. If Zen loses that or lacks that, uh, if if we lose what I would call the physical embodiment or realization of the practice, that can only be caught from someone else's body who's present near us. It can't be caught from a book. It can't be caught from our own self-study. If we lose that, then Zen loses its vitality and it loses its, its power to transform us. So it's, I wouldn't say that um, studying under a teacher is preferred in Zen. I would say it's absolutely essential. And if there is a Zen study that eschews teachers or dispenses with that connection with a mentor, it's no longer a genuine Zen.
0: Understand. Um, how many students have you connected with? Like, have you been able to give transmission to any students under your own tutelage? No, not yet.
1: Um, it's certainly a duty or a responsibility of someone in my position to do that before I die. The traditional saying is that we should, those of us who are uh, teachers uh, trying to train successors should be able to find a qualified human being or at least half a human being (laughs) to which transmit our lineage. And I'm, I'm uh, luckily still young. I hope that I will have time to do so. And one of the purposes of Coranji is to provide a place where that can happen. But no, I've not transmitted to anyone yet. Uh, Certainly I hope that will happen in the future.
0: Excellent. So tell me why you wrote your brand new book, the Rinzai Mm -hmm. way.
1: Well, my experience in the, 10 or so years that I've been, uh, certified as a teacher is that, uh, there are many people very interested in the tradition, but who don't have access to a teacher or have not, I should say, been able to, to finalize that connection with a specific teacher yet. That being said, there are still things they can do. Um, there are still some foundational practices they can start to work with and that they can learn from a distance, uh, that will be useful to help them start to dissolve and work with, you know, dissolve their obstructions, work with their own conditions, and so on. So, my original idea was oh, I should write something for my own students that can be kind of a reference for when I'm not around, can give them some guidance for those points of practice which are commonly misunderstood. But as I continued to teach and was contacted more and more often from distant or by distant folks needing guidance, again, who hadn't yet found a teacher, I realized maybe this can be useful for them too you know, even if they never formally study under a teacher, as is required in our tradition, they could still sit, you know, they could still learn a basic practice like breath counting. They can still get that benefit and no reason not to give them that. So I I will want the book, I intend the book to be as wide open a gate as possible. The purpose of it is to point towards the true and formal training under a transmitted teacher. But even if someone just steps inside the gate, if they get benefit from just that much, I don't mind. I, I feel like that's well worth having written it.
0: Yeah, there's so many practical little suggestions in the book. There is positions, there is uh, diagrams, there is very detailed instructions on breath techniques, and it's really got a cool description of like a lot of the physical parts of Zen as well. So how is Zen physical to you? Because whenever people think about Zen, a lot of times they might think about a group of people sitting... Um, Sometimes staring at the wall when it comes to Soto Zen or just like sitting motionless for hours at a time So how is it physical because I know that you have a very physical approach in the book?
1: well Zen is a as a Buddhist tradition of yogic practice uh, Coming out from that long history uh, is psychophysical by nature. There's no getting around that I think one of the big misconceptions in Buddhism in the West in general is that it's primarily a psychological Phenomena or that the revolution that comes from the practice so-called insight or wisdom is a psychological revolution It's not it's psychophysical the the Theory of the entire yogic tradition of which Buddhism uh, is a part of which Zen is a part is that we are using our mind But we're also using our body the breath the senses all of these in very specific ways to dissolve, again, our own obstructions, to to start to see the patterns of our own delusion, and to change the way we experience things. It's very difficult to change the quality or the the workings of one's mind using the mind itself. We have to engage the body and the breath and the senses, the the, the whole embodied being, in order to most quickly uh, bring about transformation. So there's a famous Zen saying, I I mention it in the book, I'm sure you're familiar with it, that it's impossible to wash off blood with blood. Mm -hmm. And in that same way, it's impossible to have a practice that is vital and that can uh, really bring about lasting transformation of of a a depth and profound nature using just the mind alone. We have to use the whole being. And I think that's something I, I hope that's something that the book will remind people about. Because again, if we lose that thread of embodied realization, Zen becomes just another type of therapy, and it it really dies. And uh, that would be a tragedy.
0: Yeah. Something that I think is so special about your book is the way that you included a lot of imagery as well in the book. You included um, the demonstration of multiple sitting postures, which I know that um, some postures are are impeded by people's physical um, conditions like for example i had back surgery and knee surgery so sometimes um, it's a challenge to get in some of the postures that are most vital in zen but you also show how to like find a wide gaze during zazen and you even mention martial arts at a lot of points in the book so what is like your physical regimen like your wellness regimen that um you can share that might help you to deepen your own practice
1: (laughs) i'm laughing because this winter i've been pretty sedentary and i'm paying the price for
0: it it's tough yeah yeah i rode my bike 30 miles yesterday and i'm really in bad shape today
1: and writing a book is not good for one's body i'll tell you that much yeah (laughs) um You know, I don't want to say that people need to have a specific regimen because, again, it depends on the person's conditions. And I also don't want to give the impression, although I'll say Zen is a psychophysical discipline and that it's an embodied discipline, that anyone is precluded from doing it who might have physical limitations. I mean, there there are ways to work with those things. But I think what we need to understand is that Zen is a practice of working with one's mind, breath and posture constantly constantly throughout the day, whatever one's activities are something as simple as the alignment of the pelvis, which is so crucial to Zazen and so incredibly and widely misunderstood um, is something that you can work on constantly as you're walking, as you're sitting in front of your computer, as you're working, doing whatever. The idea that our bodies are part of this uh, laboratory of practice and study. And should be encompassed within it and we should become aware of how we stand how we use our eyes how we uh, walk through space what we're experiencing as we do so that's the real Zen training all of that is practice it's not just sitting Uh, so uh, to sum up again I wouldn't say someone needs a particular fitness regimen or anything like that but what people need to do is get in their bodies and start to understand that the body is the vehicle of practice and that constantly refining the breath and the posture, it's not a supplement to Zen practice. It is what Zen practice is. That understanding of practice, the the embodied or physical reality of practice, I think is a thread that's lacking in a lot of Western Zen. And it's something that um, really needs to be brought out more. Again I hope I hope the book can accomplish that.
0: Sure. Yeah. So you you keep mentioning the breath and I think that the breath is one of the most taken for granted things in human life. We go through our lives until you can't do it, right? <laughs> what? What would you say?
1: Until you can't do it. <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah, until it feel until it hurts to do it or until it is painful or something. So but we we go through our lives and the body just breathes for us and we don't have to pay attention to it so often but I feel like we're kind of missing something if we don't pay attention to it. It's like the it's the vital essence of being alive. So, is it sad to you that nobody seems to think about their breathing um, in their lives? Like, what does the breath mean to you as a symbol? Well, again,
1: I speaking from the standpoint of practice, um, the, we can say that the breath, in some sense, is a bridge between the mind and the body. Um, the, the breath, in terms of its depth. Uh, the way it moves, the frequency, and so on, reveals much about our mental state and also reveals a lot about our physical state. If we learn to work with the breath, we can transform our mental and physical state. And um, likewise, if we ignore it, the breath is going to start to reflect our habitual patterns, which won't always be the most positive. So uh, it's such an incredibly powerful practice tool. And the oral instructions, um, specifically in the Rinzai lineage, regarding how to use the breath within practice are so incredibly important and foundational um, that that to me to to do a Zen practice that doesn't acknowledge the breath or doesn't cultivate it in any way is really missing out on the the core source of the practice power. Um, You know, it's like trying to drive a vehicle without gasoline. I don't know how one could do Zen training without at least becoming aware of the patterns of the breath and starting to work with them.
0: So it seems like in the book that you kind of suggest that breathing is a very essential component to successful zazen and that people worldwide might just be thinking with their eyes closed, maybe, when they think they're meditating?
1: Well, the purpose, we have to understand what the purpose of zazen is. And there's many ways to describe that in the different lineages. And uh, you know, to my mind, none of them disagree with one another. They may have different terminology and so on. But the condition that comes out from practice of Zazen or Zen training in general, uh, what we call Samadhi or the state of meditative absorption, is deepened profoundly and uh, deepened to the extent that one is able to integrate and cultivate the breathing. The breath is what drives the subtlety and the, the depth of the Samadhi condition within the Zazen posture. If someone, again, doesn't engage that in their sitting practice or in their general Zen practice, it is very possible to sit for many years, even with a a perfect, so-called perfect posture, and to feel that one is somewhat clear, but really to be kind of uh, fixated in a a rather dead state, uh, a state lacking vitality, and a state in which the the real underpinnings of one's dualistic confusion or, or you know, habitual delusion is never really cut through. Um, it, it is really a shame to see that um, there are a lot of Zen lineages that seem to have pieces of the puzzle but don't have all of them. To me, the breath is the biggest of those. So, so
0: the method that I kind of latched on to when I was reading the book is called, I, I believe I'm saying it right, Suso Kukan? Yeah, breath counting. Yeah, and I think that I could do this practice forever and have it be an endlessly beneficial practice. Like, if I did that, is that sufficient?
1: Um, Yes, it can be. It's certainly a sufficient method for one's whole life for people for whom that is the case. (laughs) Right. But how does one know that? That's the teacher's job to let us know that or to prescribe that for us. We shouldn't choose a method based on our own comfort and preferences. Um, but there are certainly people whose teachers will say to them oh, breath counting is a method for you. Just go with it I don't think that one could exhaust it. It's incredibly profound in the Rinzai tradition. We use it as a foundational practice as I describe in the book, but Whatever other practices of the many that one may take up later uh, We always return to it. It's always useful and I'd never feel like I could exhaust it
0: so I am a uh, I'm gonna admit to you that this is like a crime. I am a binge meditator, and'm <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get away from it. I'm gonna um, use that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. So I'm a binge meditator. Like I will go once a week and I will go like hardcore or I'll go to an all day um retreat, but I it's a it's a habit that I need to break. So everyone that I've spoken to about meditation on the show has like emphasized, the daily practice over the binge practice, which I am totally guilty of. And so that said, forming habits, especially for me, is one of the hardest things for people to do. What steps did you take to master the habit of the daily practice?
1: Okay, so practice is a habit. But I don't want to focus on it as habit because I think what's really missing and I don't mean with you, (laughs) but with with some people in general uh, who have trouble establishing a consistent practice, um, isn't that they're not able to figure out how to establish the habit, but that their motivation is not strong enough. Uh, If we don't have the practice that's founded on a very deep aspiration to aid all beings, uh, a deep motivation to use our lives uh, in the most productive and uh, wise or, or useful way possible, uh, the deep motivation to use our existence to benefit others. If we if we don't have that, if the practice doesn't somehow come from that initial aspiration, uh, we're not going to do it. And uh, I, as I wrote in the book, we often find that when we try to do things for ourselves, we can be haphazard. But when we are in a situation where we're doing something for others, um, oftentimes our we act with more care we put more effort into it i think that's the case with practice if the motivation and the aspiration are strong enough we find that we can establish the habit easily if we find we have difficulty doing that i think we need to look not just at schedule and habit but at uh, why are we practicing and is that motivation sufficiently profound
0: yeah and I'm so much better whenever there's a, whenever there are other people in the room as well. Like, I feel like I can go for hours if I'm just well, that's with, if we I'm get with people.
1: Yeah, that's because we get embarrassed if other people see us stop or move. Right? It's certainly helpful.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and one of the things I've been testing out lately is the Kekafuza full lotus posture. Mm-hmm. And it has been – and you wrote in the book that it is um, an unrivaled method, basically, to progress. Yeah. and. I agree. I didn't really understand it until I was successful doing like 15 to 20 minute Kekafuza sits. Um, mm-hmm. Do you notice your students who sit in full Lotus have easier breakthroughs or more? Um, I don't really know if I want to say enjoyable, but uh, productive um, experiences.
1: Well, again, I. Um talking about zazen or seated meditation, um, in order for that unified condition we call samadhi to manifest, um, we have to use the body, the breath, the mind in, in particular ways. And while I can't exactly say why, I mean, I can talk about some traditional reasons that are given for it, but we've known for more than 2,500 years in this tradition that that posture has particular effects on the mind and body. It's a yoga kasana. It takes a long time to master and practice, and one shouldn't be discouraged if it takes a long time. But it, it the way that it allows the unified samadhi condition to manifest, for whatever reasons, is, as I said, unrivaled. So um, I th- we shouldn't be surprised that the things they've been telling us to do for centuries work. At the same time, I think we need to be compassionate with ourselves and patient with ourselves and understand that... These are difficult postures that require as much mastery as any other any other yogic posture. So we, we take the time that we need to, to get there, and there's lots of uh, points along the way that, or different postures along the way that we can use until we do get there. That's no problem.
0: Excellent. So um, you've said the word a couple of times. I think you said um, psychological and physical knots, right? Uh huh. So. Zen, in your words, um, serves to sort of like untie the psychological and physical knots that our culture has tied us in. And you mentioned earlier that you feel like we need more of the centers like Karinji in today's society. So how is our culture to you encouraging us to be tied up?
1: Well, I mean... First of all, in terms of using the body and the mind and the senses in in balanced and healthy ways, we're certainly not going in that direction, are we? Uh, You and I are sitting in chairs talking uh, through a screen. Yep. Um, And a lot of us spend too much of our days staring at screens and sitting in chairs. And that right there is going to have an impact on how we experience things. We have to recognize that. Uh, The way we use our senses, for example, we indulge in overuse of focused vision in the modern era. Staring at screens, staring at phones, staring at books, text, and so on. That has an effect on how we experience things, and it's not how we were physically evolved to function. We, we were evolved to use uh, peripheral activation or sweeping vision much more uh, frequently than we do today. Those kind of concrete things, which we can acknowledge and work with, um, have, a, have an effect, and I'm discouraged to see culture uh, or work-life driving us towards a type of existence which is much less embodied and much more focused on subjective psychological states and, and uh, the desire to validate our subjective impressions as, as uh, de facto uh, important. Um, Zen is going a different direction than that. We have to start to see through our own subjective impressions and states and preferences and, and get to the root of the fixation on a so-called I or me which is at the root of much of our delusion. So I I don't think we have the problems we face now are different than have been faced in the past, but certainly things seem to have accelerated in a direction that has cut us off from being in our bodies, cut us off from being in nature and and, and feeling grounded on the earth. Uh, There's certainly rather profound challenges today that are greater than have been in the past. So...
0: (laughs) Yeah. Do you see, so do you kind of see like the, the the tightening of the knots as society speeds up? Do you kind of see that as like being their trajectory? Is it like the knots are becoming tighter as opposed to looser?
1: You know, the Buddha said his teaching was against the stream of society. So perhaps it was always that way. Um, it does seem there are unique challenges today, though. Um, the I will say this when it comes to something like Zen practice, I think there is a certain remedial understanding of how to use one's body and senses and breath and just just how to exist as a psychophysical being with two feet on the earth that maybe in the past uh, a student would already have, whereas today we have to teach people. This is how you walk.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: This is, this is how you breathe as a not as a Zen practitioner, but just as a normal human be, human being. Please use your diaphragm rather than your chest. We have to teach those things now
0: mm-hmm. before we
1: can get deeply into practice at all. So again, if whether or not that's driven by the culture or the the, the direction of of human civilization at this point, I can't say for sure, but um, it certainly does seem to be a a challenge greater than in the past.
0: You know, one of the things that. I think about whenever I think about these issues leaders talking about as I spend all of my day in a normal American high school. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as I stand in the hallway and I look around, I feel like someday there's going to be a sort of revolution when so many people realize how much of their lives they have missed due to walking down the street or down the hallway with our faces buried in an electronic device Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like there's going to be a backlash against that and, like, almost like a a, a a reclamation of real life. I don't know. Maybe I'm hopeful. What do you think? Uh, I, I'm i hopeful.
1: <laughs> we have to there, be. There will definitely be always be revolution and change. I can't say what direction it's going to go. Um, you know, obviously, we have a lot of benefits right now, too. Things like dentistry are great. Yeah. Uh, um, the ability to, from a Zen standpoint, you know, we don't have to take a hazardous sea voyage or caravan journey to travel to the distant temple of a master to learn. We can email a half dozen of them <laughs> anytime we like. Exactly. So in terms of making connections and information exchange, uh, certainly wonderful, but we're, we're losing a lot with that in terms of our embodied existence, and therefore also losing some of the seeds of what makes Zen practice so powerful. That's my concern.
0: So whenever we're like looking down or we're not looking out into the world, we're missing uh, vistas, basically, large views. And one of your favorite quotes in the book is you wrote that you have stunning vistas that are revealed during the path of Zazen and, and Zen. Um, so what are some of your favorite stunning vistas that have been revealed to you on your path? Do you have like any favorite moments? I mean,
1: one could talk about specific experiences, but that's not really my interest to do that. Uh, to me, the, they're all variations on the same, the same vista. And it's simply that the habitual way we have of seeing the universe, of, of uh, perceiving the world, which is that I'm in here and everything else is out there. Or I'm inside this, this case of bone we call a skull behind these eyes, and everything else out there is not me. And everything else out there, which is not me, I therefore go about uh, judging and categorizing, I like this, I don't like that, I want to keep this, I'm going to push that away, and so on. That That fundamental way of splitting the universe into pieces we call dualistic seeing. Uh, The stunning vista of Zen is when we can transcend that or when we can see in a way not bound by that. All the Zen experiences, we talk about Kensho or Satori or so-called enlightenment, uh, all of the insight coming from the practice is just that. It's seeing from the standpoint not of a so-called I or me. Uh, The more stunning that vista or experience might be is just simply tied to the depth or the profundity of that experience.
0: Whenever I read that line in the book, I just thought of art and paintings, and it was just such an artful line, and I really appreciated it. Do you consider Zen to be almost sort of like a radical practice? I know you mentioned the Buddha's line earlier oh, of being against the stream. Like, Do you consider Zen to be sort of like a radical way of looking at the world today? I think
1: reality is radical.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and any path which
1: is going to... Um, Help us to dissolve the sort of habits, Uh, you you called them uh, or or echoed the phrase I use, the knots, to untie the knots. I use that word to sort of refer to the Japanese jike, which means the karmic traces or the the karmic habituation and patterns which we all carry in our bodies and minds. Anything which causes us or helps us to be aware and to, to manifest the particular clarity which can cut through that stuff. Because that stuff is not something that most people uh, can, are working with and can see through, if we start to do that process, it becomes radical. It's, it is against the stream. But it's radical simply because it is real. And uh, waking up from a dream can seem radical, I
0: suppose. Yeah. So in the book, you, um, you open up with each chapter with a quote with the disciple of Zen, and there's one person that really drew my attention and correct me if I say this incorrectly, but it's it Hakuin Hakuin yes. Yeah. So he's a master who sort of revitalized Rinzai in Japan, I think. And he organized what Rinzai looks like today. Why does he inspire you? Because I've never, I've never talked about Hakuin on this show and I'm curious if you can just say why he jumps out at you.
1: Well, he was incredibly gifted. Um, certainly a genius. And, uh, one of those, people who comes along that the cliché is to say about every 500 years, but approximately every 500 years in Zen, there seems to be one or a handful of people who come along at the right time, in the right conditions, who are able to inject new life into things. And he was one of those. Um, The way that our Rinzai Zen lineage, as it passed through Japan and was transmitted to the West, was able to survive is purely because of the vitality that he injected into it. And uh, in terms of organizing the practice, uh, that we do today, he really brought all of his genius and energy to bear on looking at things like the koan practice, for example, very, very important practice, which Rinzai Zen has refined to a high degree, and setting forth a a sort of curriculum or path using that method, which has really turned out to be just incredibly, incredibly useful so, um, I would, I would say from those two standpoints, in terms of the actual path of practice, Hakuin was quite, uh, uh, an organizer and innovator, but really the vitality, the energetic vibration that that teacher had and was able to impart to his disciples who then set about revitalizing the Rinzai lineage in Japan, and of course, into the West really unmatched. So, um. Uh, we're still living off of his energy.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And
1: hopefully by the time another 500 years goes by someone else will pop up.
0: Very good. Nice. Um I've had another thing that I love about your book is the moment where you talked about Abrahamic religion and the fact that we do live in an overwhelmingly Abrahamic monotheistic society. And mm-hmm. I had a few Zen teachers on this show and I thought of one in particular when I read that chapter. His name is Robert Kennedy. He is mm-hmm. a Zen roshi. Um under, I think he received his Inca from Bernie Glassman. And he's also a Jesuit priest. Mm-hmm. And when reading your chapter about Abrahamic religion and Zen, Kennedy jumped out because he's kind of like a special exemplar to me um, for how he's opened himself to multiple traditions and how both of his practices strengthen the other. So his Christianity strengthens his Zen. His Zen strengthens his Christianity. So in a nation like the United States... Of largely Abrahamic religious practitioners how do you envision sort of strengthening dialogue with the Abrahamic Westerners in your region
1: mm-hmm. well I, I think as I said in that chapter um, an important thing for us to do is to try to to be in their shoes and and to understand the the standpoint of their faith and and the underpinnings of uh, the belief system which they carry I I want to say outright that I'm not what I would call a universalist. Um, I think there is a trend in religious thought to uh, sort of say that the different tradition, uh, traditions equate to one another, or that the highest realization or experience of each is the same. I don't believe that's necessarily the case. But in terms of dialogue, or for the purpose of dialogue, as Buddhists, as Zen practitioners, we have to be comfortable with using the word God, uh, not for our own tradition, but we have to understand what is meant by God in the deepest sense in those faith traditions, and try to see what language in our own tradition can match with that or communicate with that. Um, not being a theistic tradition, Buddhism not being a tradition which posits a creator deity and so on, there there's some real interesting barriers to understanding the communication, but when it comes to the experience of contemplatives, of practitioners, and the types of language they use, um, there is common ground. And and I think by not eschewing words like God, and, and by not avoiding the discussion of that particular issue of the deity, uh, that we can at least Dialogue respectfully. That's what I hope for more than anything is that we can see what the common ground is and just rest with that and let the rest of the stuff take care of itself.
0: <laughs> Excellent. So having that that knowledge of the context in which you're working, like, you know, all of that is really relevant to where I live as well. So mm-hmm. what do you see the role of American Zen being in the future?
1: Well... Certainly, our standpoint that comes out from the practice, the realization of transcending the so-called I um, directly manifests as compassionate action. So in a society that seems to be increasingly geared towards selfish fulfillment and indulgence of of individual preferences and pleasures and fixation on partisan views and so on, the, the, the basic, basic teaching of Becoming one with the other or or, uh, acknowledging the lack of separation between so-called self and other and being able to uh, approach that other person's viewpoint with a compassionate attitude rather than a confrontational one. That's so basic, but it's what Buddhism can give to the West as much as anything. I hope Zen can do that. At the same time, uh, as I said, as as a somewhat radical movement, which forces us to look at the most fundamental ways that we see and per, and, and perceive and interact in our environments, I hope that Zen can um, help us to continually destruct or deconstruct the uh, sort of I fixation and the, the, the fixation of uh, self versus other, um, fixations of man versus environment, all of these dualistic Divisions, which we create in our heads. Um, Zen as a radical movement should be a voice for acknowledging those and trying to see beyond them.
0: What is your, what are a couple of your personal future goals for your own practice? Like what do <laughs> you try, practice, Yeah. What do you want to accomplish still?
1: I would like to, uh, uh, stop being as deluded as I am. <laughs> Excellent. Um, in terms of my practice at Kōrinji or the establishment of that mon- establishment of that monastery, um, I've always thought to myself that I have three main goals in life. One is to establish that monastery, so we have a Rinzai Zen training monastery in the middle of the heartland. Yeah. And as of this week, we've finished that. After 15 years of work, the second goal is now I have to make it succeed and survive. And the third goal is I have to find someone who can carry it on after I'm gone, whenever that may be. So. The hard work is is really now just starting, and um, uh, I hope that all of three, though, three of those goals can be accomplished before I pass on. That's my work now for the next however many years I'm around.
0: So, what's your uh, website? Where can people find you?
1: Korinji.org. Uh, K-O-R-I-N-J-I.org.
0: So, Roshi, I'm hoping that we can close with a chant because uh, in the book I loved how you called the chanting almost like an art form. Um, I had Shozan Jack Hobner do the Heart Sutra, and I'm wondering if you can do the Four Great Vows chant, and then after you're done, maybe talk about what it means a little bit, um, just in sort of translation. Sure, no problem. Thank you. <clears throat>
1: So those are the four bodhisattva vows, or the so-called four great vows. Um, The first is the vow to liberate or to save all beings. Although beings are boundless, we vow to save them. Uh, The second is to cut off the root of bono or uh, klesha, delusion, ignorance. Um, The third is to practice all of the Dharma gates, not just uh, the gates of the Zen path, but all the approaches to wisdom or enlightenment to practice and to master them. And the final is that although the Buddha way, the way of supreme enlightenment is unsurpassed, uh, we vow to attain it
0: roshi congratulations on your book congratulations on the establishment of your training monastery and thank you so much for spending an hour with me today to talk about your practice and everything that you're doing up in wisconsin it means so much to me really a
1: pleasure greg thank you so much and uh, thank you for making this opportunity to get the word out
0: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.